1: This is Masters in Business with Barry
2: Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. And strap yourself in for this one. It's absolutely fascinating. Joe Moglia could have the most unique career I'm familiar with. Not only is he a Wall Street veteran, 17 years at Merrill Lynch, eventually rising to the role of CEO and chairman, at TD Ameritrade, which is just a giant custodian and trading shop. But he also has been the head football coach and defensive coordinator at a number of esteemed college teams. Um, Such a a fascinating and unusual career. And he went back and forth between the two of the careers several times. It's really an intriguing career path he took. When life uh, basically threw him a lemon, he really made lemonade and created one of the most interesting careers in sports and finance. Uh, there's a ton to learn about him. He's been unusually successful in both careers, and I just found this to be absolutely fascinating. So, with no further ado, my conversation with Joe Moglia. <laughs> This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest this week is Joe Moglia. He has one of the most fascinating careers in finance. He was the head coach of a football team at Coastal Carolina U from 2012 through 2018. Uh, he was also a 17-year veteran at Merrill Lynch Before becoming chairman and CEO of TD Ameritrade, which was the largest online brokerage firm, if you measure it, by daily retail online trades, he is also the author of two books, The Perimeter Attack Offense and Coach Yourself to Success, Winning the Investment Game. Joe Moglia, welcome to Bloomberg.
1: Barry, thank you very much. I'm excited to be on.
2: I'm excited to have you and I I have to start out. With your career, which is which is so fascinating, you began in athletics. You were a college football coach for sixteen seasons. What made you say, ah, "Let me pick up a side hustle in finance"? Well,
1: so there's a little bit of a story, you know, behind this, of course, but I will jump to the transition time. So, I coached for sixteen years, and uh, my it was 1981. It was my first year as defensive coordinator at Dartmouth, and uh, we had four children. And we were in the middle of a staff meeting and the sheriff from Hanover, New Hampshire comes in and he, he, he needs to see me. And I was thought there was a death in the family. He says, Coach, I'm sorry, he has me divorce papers. <laughs> so I couldn't afford to live independently and support my wife and four children. So I got permission to move into a storage room above the football offices. Uh, I I didn't mind that it was small, but it had no heat. And this is New Hampshire. So I could see my breath in the wintertime. I lived there for two years. Now, my goal as a coach, Barry, was one day I wanted to be head coach of a major, major school, you know, in Michigan and Notre Dame and Nebraska whatever. But that was my goal. Well, that year, January 1984, in the Orange Bowl, Miami upset Nebraska for the national championship. And their secondary coach, Mike Archer, took the head job at LSU. And the following year, the defensive coordinator was going to the Cleveland Browns. And they offered me the opportunity to go down as the secondary coach and then later on succeed Oliver Dottie, the current defensive coordinator, as defensive coordinator. So I'm going from defensive coordinator in the Ivy League to defensive coordinator in the national championship team. I could not have a more perfect next step of my career. Could not have been more perfect. But... You know, a football coach works seven days a week, about 80 hours a week. Five months, you don't get a day off. That's literal. There's no days off. And, um, and especially back then, coaches didn't make that much. And I'm going to be living in Carl Gables, Florida, where my children are going to live with their mom in New Hampshire. And I couldn't afford to fly back and forth. So the most difficult decision I ever made was I turned down that job. But I didn't think I could do that job as a coach if I couldn't live up to my responsibilities as a father. Right. But that also told me very clearly that means I can't stay in football. So I majored in economics, and I always had an interest in Wall Street, uh, so I, I, I thought that I really wanted to pursue a career on the institutional side of Wall Street. Not easy to figure out, but ultimately, Merrill Lynch gave me an opportunity in their institutional MBA training program. There were 26 of us, 25 MBAs and one football coach. And... <laughs> Pretty much everybody said, this football guy is not going to make it here. But ultimately, you know, the majority of those NBAs were working for me, and, and it wound up turning out okay. But that's the transition from football to Wall Street the first time.
2: So, so you were at Merrill Lynch in the early 1980s at the start of, a, of an 18-year bull market. What was it like in those days? That was a very different world than the world of, of today or even the world of the late 90s.
1: Uh, I, I would agree now. I'd be, after I went through my training program, uh, I became, uh, an institutional bond salesman. So it was also an interesting time in the bond world because hey, I didn't realize it up until then, but you take a lot more risk on your trading desk in, in fixed income than what you would have in the equity world. And rates were high, but they did, The bull market wasn't just in equities. The bull market was also in fixed income because rates were coming down. And, uh, there was a tremendous, uh, amount of things that you know, I needed to be able to learn, but frankly, I already knew how to handle myself under stress. Uh, I knew how to listen. I knew how to have an impact on people, and I think I was without question a much better bond salesman because of my experience as a coach. So, so, so for me, and I, frankly, and I, I became a pretty prolific bond salesman, and then from there, I wound up moving into executive management in the late eighties. Merrill Lynch had uh, a horrible three hundred seventy-seven million dollar Uh, mortgage-backed security loss. And that was very significant, plus the time. Back then, 377 was very real money. But I think Wall Street was learning also that you needed your leaders, your real leaders, to be in executive management positions, so and they just weren't producers that, that, that wound up getting promoted. Uh, but my ability to learn what's going on in the markets, how critical fixed income is, the role of the Fed, all of those things, which have a significant impact on the equity markets, were all those things that I learned during that period.
2: Huh. And and we'll talk more about the bond market later. We're, we're arguably still in the uh, 40-year bond bull market that began Back in the early '80s, when Volcker broke the back of inflation, but let's stay with Merrill Lynch for now. You you were at Mother Merrill for 17 years. What was your last role before you departed?
1: Uh, I had I was the first person in the firm to go from the executive management executive management team on the institutional side to the private client side. And um, before I left, I was responsible for all investment products the 401k business, the insurance business, and the middle market business.
2: So that's a pretty serious role, and it obviously prepped you to become CEO of TD Ameritrade. I think that was 2001. Tell us about the transition from Merrill to TD. What, what was that like?
1: Well, I think that I was leaving you know, one of the greatest brands in the history of finance, uh we were I, th- I think at the time we i think we were an 80 billion dollar company you know we had i think sixty seventy thousand employees in 47 different countries we were double a rated uh, bond and uh, i was going from a company that had incredible stability to a company that was blowing up as the dot-com bubble burst and um but Ameritrade was losing a lot of money. The market cap had gone down to about $700 million. And I had done my homework before taking this job, and I thought there was probably a 10% chance we might go out of business, a 10% chance we might hit a real home run, but 80% chance no matter what I was going to make it better. And then after I got there, I realized that <laughs> I thought there was a 25% chance we'd go out of business. And one of the things that I learned pretty much early on, I'm not an expert, that we were really a technology firm and a financial service wrapper. And we needed to focus on what our core competencies were so we could leverage those into competitive advantages so we could be leaders in the market niches that we chose to participate in. And by doing that, uh, I would take half of, I, I got, we were in seven or eight different countries. I got out of virtually all of them. We were doing different businesses and different products. I got out of all of them. And I took that money, half of it, to offset offset the um, the losses that we were having. And the other half, I poured back into our core competencies. And our core competency was transaction processing. Well, in the financial world, that's buying and selling stocks. And that was when we became, you know, very, very, very significant in that arena. And once we kind of got ourselves straightened out, the, the recession after the dot-com bubble burst was March 2000 to March 2003. And this is around the middle of that. And consolidation had not begun in the industry, and that's when I felt that was a significant opportunity for us.
2: So, so let's talk about that period, that bear market. Um, market peaked March two thousand, around fifty one hundred. Did not bottom until October o two, and then again a, a second bottom in March o three, at about a thousand, down over uh, eighty yep. percent. I have to imagine that you're running the hottest online training company at the time trading volume had to have really
1: dropped off a cliff during that period what was that like well you, you know Barry kind of you can almost make a parallel to what's going on today back in the, the 90s when everything was going incredibly well for everybody uh, the day trader because of the internet uh, became alive and um And one of the things that Ameritrade did, they really did everything they could. They tried to do a lot of other things, but they tried to focus on the day trader. Strategically, that was not a great decision because the day traders, once the market blew up, per your reference, the day traders wound up going out of business. So we needed to kind of restructure our entire business, but it was not to do something that we couldn't do. It was to focus on the ability to be able to trade, not the day trader, just an active trader. Platform, and um, uh, so so at, at the time the industry there was tremendous in the consolidating industry. There's far greater supply than there is in terms of demand, but but trades had certainly significantly dropped off. Uh, but by 2003, doing leading the industry in consolidation and uh, focusing on the emphasis that we focused on, uh, we start we started to do more trades than anybody else.
0: You know success when you see it, or you think you do. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
2: Let's talk a little bit about how did coaching prepare you for running a giant financial organization?
1: I think in terms of... Um, I've often said that I was a much better bond salesman, uh, I think, and a Wall Street executive because of my experience as a coach. And then when I went back to coaching uh, as a head coach, I think I was a much better head football coach because of my experience as a business leader and um, when you think about football, you need to be able to make decisions very quickly. Your entire career is dependent upon what you do on Saturday. You have an incredible, stressful 80-hour work week. Uh, there are no days off in the span of a five-month season or so. Uh, you, need to, you need to be able to understand people. You need to be able to motivate, inspire. You need to be able to discipline. You need to be able to incent. Uh, you also need to have a very, very well-thought-out strategy that would handle contingencies in terms of your opponents then what happened, but you have to be able to simplify that strategy in order to execute. So in football, you've about 11 people functioning at once with zero error. Uh, well, in the business world, there are a lot of firms I think that don't maximize their potential because it sounds like a grand deal strategy, but it's not simplified enough to really truly be able to execute. So if you take all those things together, um, and whether I was talking about football or whether I was talking about the business world, uh, they would really be the same principles, the exact same principles. The only thing that's different, Barry, is the product. The product of football is very different from the product of finance. But the principles behind running a, a good business, a successful business, being a good leader, and each are really the same.
2: Huh. Makes a lot of sense to me. I recall that merger between Daytech Online and TD Waterhouse. I was on a trading desk um, early in my career, and I have a vivid recollection of my former trading buddies when I had been, by that time I was already off the desk, kind of freaking out about the merger. Tell us a little bit about who Daytech was while you were running TD Waterhouse and what that experience was like going through a major merger.
1: And It was about 2002, so I'd been there almost a year, and we had gotten our act straight. And um, the first deal we did actually was National Discount Broker, and they were owned by Deutsche Bank, and we paid $154 to for them, but we had no cash, so we had to do it in stock when we were worth about $700 million. And if we had not gotten that deal done right, we would have gone out of business. Right. And, um, with the DayTech deal, uh, we were we were losing money. They were making money. They were by far our biggest competitor. They were taking market share from us. And uh, frankly, they would when they wanted to do something strategic, and they put together the the the, the memo of of, of of details associated with trying to do something like that. We didn't even get that, and they weren't interested in doing something with us. So I, I figured out who the who the leaders were. They were owned by private equity. The three dominant ones were T.A. and Bain and Civil Lake. And I actually flew to Boston, and I met you know, in a private room with uh, Steve Pagliuca, the guy at Bain. And we kind of worked things out a little bit on the back of a napkin. The next day, I met with their board. And then shortly thereafter, I met with our guys. And then eventually, we figured it out. But again, once again, we didn't have any cash, so we had to do it for stock. So this was a 50-50 deal. So we paid $1. A billion 150 for them when we were worth a billion 150. And again, we screwed that deal up. We are gone. We were out of business. But we did, had a home run with NDB and we had a home run with Baytech. And we but delivered above and beyond what anybody thought we would.
2: Right. So after the merger, you're now the biggest online trading firm, at least if we're going by daily volume. What are the challenges of running a big technology company essentially in that space?
1: Well, so while when I got to Ameritrade, while you know we were really struggling and from a financial perspective, uh, the one thing that uh, that I thought uh, Ameritrade did very well in the '90s uh, was when they went public, they took a lot of that money they poured it into marketing and they poured it into technology. So I was aware of that before I took the job. So uh, for me, uh, I don't frankly I didn't know much about online brokerage. I didn't know much about technology. But there's nothing new in that, but I knew how to run a business. And I had people around me that all knew all those things. So I think with regard to technology, I think you've got to be aware that you've got to be religious with your fervor in terms of making sure that you're staying on top of how can we break down what the contingency plan, what's going to happen. There's a lot going on. How are we going to be able to do that? And, you know, we needed the right people in leadership roles and we needed to make sure that we knew it was a real commitment on managers' part. And as I said, we really weren't a financial service firm. We were really a technology firm and a financial service wrapper. And as long as you got your priorities straight, that certainly helped us out significantly over time.
2: So given that you weren't an asset management shop, you weren't charging uh, fees based on AUMs, what What did the revenue breakdown look like, you know, in between the dot-com collapse and the financial crisis? That's about as modern an era of online trading that's separate from, from today's era, as I can imagine. What were the revenue sources? Was it strictly execution and trading or were and some margin loan uh, lending, or was were there other uh, lines of revenue?
1: Well, there are basically three ways that I think a brokerage firm can make money with regards to, at least, at least with regards to its trading. The first is the commissions you're charging, and the second one would be the, uh, the way you manage your assets which are the client assets on the balance sheet, you know what do you do with those assets? Do you invest them? How do you handle that? Uh, that became a big issue in two thousand and eight of course right. The second way, and then the third way would be payment for order flow so there'd be the three ways in effect that you can make money back then back then though the dominant the dominant um, our, our dominant revenue stream was for trading and our commissions
2: now in your mind when you're running this company and Trading is – sixty. I remember before the Schwab-TD merger, and we'll talk about that later, I remember reading that uh, it was something like 57% of revenue at TD was trading. It was a much smaller percentage of Schwab, so it became easier for them to drop the cost structure. But in your wildest imagination, did you ever suppose there would be a time
1: when trading would become free? Well, you know, I think the, um, I think in Chuck Schwab's book, he actually, I think, predicted, you know, back in the early '90s or at some point in time that, you know, it might be, it might be free. But I think from a business perspective, I talked earlier about you have to have a thoughtful strategy that handles contingencies down the road, problems, issues that pop up. Well, there was no question. You just look at the history that, you know, the. Um, uh, fees the commissions were being squeezed and squeezed and squeezed and they were just going to continue to go down. So we always believed that there was a shot that one day there may be zero commissions and we better be prepared for that. But we didn't want to waste all of our time on that because we really had businesses we got to run. But probably I'd say pretty much every board meeting, there was some discussion, well, almost every board meeting, there's some discussion about like what's going to happen if we wind up commissions wind up going to zero. And, um, and then eventually, of course, kind of we got to zero. I think we got there faster than anybody anticipated when Schwab decided that to cut commissions to zero. But uh, but but we all, there was always that. We always thought that that was that possibility. In my head, if I had to guess, I would have guessed probably that would have happened around 2025. So
2: I'm trying to think back to what it was like then. And I'm only imagining these board meetings. At what point do you look at margin pressures and say, we have to continue to get bigger, we have to continue to get more efficient, and we have to be the best user of technology of anyone. Otherwise, our business is at risk.
1: I think from the very beginning, that was the principle. And I think that also the reason, part of the reason why I thought it was so important to to lead the consolidation in the industry was because you wanted scale. But I think the best answer to zero commissions is a real quality asset base. So the focus on being able to gather assets also became very, very important to us. So the consolidation helped us, helped, helped us with synergies, helped us with scale, helped, only helped our profit margins. It allowed us to grow market share. When we purchased data, we, Ameritrade bought TD Waterhouse from TD Group, and that's when it became TD Ameritrade. Uh, but they also were big in the RIA business. And that was a business I really wanted to be in as well, because I thought that that allowed us to go after the more serious longer term investor. And, uh, so, so you're, you're, you're spreading your risk out over the different types of investors that actually are out there, not just the trader or the active trader, but also the long term investor. And you're gathering assets while, while we go. So, uh, when we did. You know, when when we announced the Schwab deal, I think we were at about 1.5 trillion in assets. You know, when I began, that we had 24 billion in assets. So, uh, making sure your technology was top notch, always testing it, making sure you continue to prioritize where you were, where you're going to invest capital, and the consolidation, growing assets, uh, uh, was all part of the plan. And you know, it was it was very very effective. Huh. Quite quite
2: fascinating.
1: So let's talk
2: a little bit about this business of free trading. And, and I have to start um, with the obvious question, hey, I, I learned in economics there's no such thing as a free lunch. Is free trading really free, or are there costs that we're just not
1: aware of as as traders? I think you've got to look at that from two perspectives. First, do it from the perspective of the trader. Uh, so everything's pretty simple. You go to your website, boom, boom, boom. You put in a trade, it gets executed almost always instantaneously. And you get, you get, you have to get the best execution at that moment in time in the marketplace. And all the time you actually get, uh, you get price improvement, all right? That's what you see up front. And that costs you zero. Now look at the back end behind that. You've got gazillion dollars worth of infrastructure, technology, regulatory, many, many, many different things that need to take place. So when you do the trade, it goes through the broker right to the market maker. The market maker, in effect, has a spread. They have to give the client the best the best execution at that time. You decide, as the broker, how much price improvement you want to give them, and then you keep the rest in terms of payment for the flow. Right. So the way you pay for this is through the payment for the flow. So on the front end, the client really does get excellent execution, and he or she is paying is getting it for free. but at the back end there's tremendous expense involved as well as uh, uh, com- com- complexity and that it's taken care of by payment for order flow.
2: So to simplify that, back in the days when it was eight dollar trades or10 dollars or 15, I, I think the last we saw was about seven bucks a trade, there wasn't that necessarily that payment for order flow. Were traders getting better execution, less spread going to the market maker, back when trades had a a fee attached to them
1: from the time i showed up at ameritrade you know the number one priority is make sure we take care of our clients so it was always a commitment uh, to make sure that they got uh the, the best execution now, when you were making money back then, I'm sorry, when you were when you were charging fees back then, you did you got both. You got the commission as well as the spread and payment for order flow. But the client was still getting best execution, but they were paying eight dollars or five dollars or seven dollars or whatever that was. Now keep in mind too, Barry, back then, you know, technology was not as good as it is twenty years later when commissions went to zero. But it was good, but not the way it is today. I mean, obviously, technology improves significantly from one year to the next, certainly from every two or three years to the next two or three years. So, so, so you had that going on. But with regard to that, the individual investor still would get price improvement. So when I stepped down, when we, by the time we closed our deal, on the, we, uh, on the payment portfolio piece that we were able to control, we, the, we gave price improvement on a ratio of three and a half to one. So the client benefited three and a half to one times what we would have benefited from it.
2: So this raises the question, are custodians able to make up the lost revenue? Are they getting it from somewhere? Or is this just becoming an increasingly low margin business? When, when we look at a, a shop like Schwab, I think the number I saw when they announced the TD deal was that 57% of their revenue came from the float, from the money they made on cash sitting around overnight,
1: right. So, so the way the way you make money, you can make money by your commissions. Now they go away. Then you have your payment for default, but then you have your asset base and the ability of any brokerage firm or bank to rein, to take those assets and reinvest those is another way for to, to generate incremental revenue for that particular firm or bank. Uh, now, I think. I think when you, when you look at that situation specifically uh you also start to recognize then you know as as interest rates with higher interest rates you know you can you can you can take advantage of the yield curve there where you might be paying 1% to the client um, going a few years back now, but you might be able to make 3 or 4 or 5% in the case of a bank maybe doing a mortgage, in the case of us, investing in fixed income type securities. But you would you got to manage that because is your balance sheet. And you still, of course, have the liability to, to to your client base. But they're the different ways you make money. I would like to add one more point. That's off trading. So keep in mind that that you want to be able to diversify from trading as much as you reasonably can. So, therefore... The growing of the assets, the use of the IRA, the RIAs, the use of, of uh, uh, robo type portfolios and different asset allocation tools and risk management tools help you do that. Help you be able to diversify. Maybe getting involved more with fixed income is another way to be able to diversify. So you want to be able to to diversify your revenue stream away from trading, but with regard to the trading, you can still make money the payment order flow as well as what you do with the assets. When you have very low interest rates, as we do today and have for a while, that's more difficult to do. Huh.
2: So what do you think of apps like Robinhood that have gamified the concept of trading, especially for young, young inexperienced um, people who are you know, bored, stuck at home, and, and Robinhood makes this kind of fun?
1: Well, I think number one, I think it's great that we've got, you know, younger people coming into the marketplace, even if they're coming in initially as day traders. I think because those people are so wired and so connected and have played games themselves, but are certainly incredibly efficient with regard to what they have with regard to technology, I think the idea of gamifying that was, I think, probably a pretty good marketing tool. And uh, with the leadership that, that the retail investor has, the day trader rather, has seen from the Reddits and the Ask Kevins of the world, et cetera, uh, you know, they've been able to put on some pretty significant pretty significant trades. The concern that I have is that, so I, I give the retail investor, I give Hood credit for that, but the concern I have is that, think back to the 90s, when the dot-com bubble burst, there were significant day traders in the 90s. They went out of business at some point in time we 've had a pretty significant bull run here in equities the last five years the last two three years you know we 've had some really good day trading going on, but at some point the market 's going to turn and and I think it it behooves the robberhoods of the world Ameritrade does this Schwab does this now it 's Schwab Schwab does this other firms that have been around a while do this but you 've got to do you 've got to educate your client. So, for example, let's say you have a GameStop trade on. You know, and you bought it at 10, and it goes to 20, 30, 40, 50. Well, should you take something off the table? No, I'm going to wait to 200. Oh, it gets 200. I take something off the table. I think you need to, to to help people understand how to manage their risk when they're in those situations. Because if the markets really turn around and go the other way for a prolonged period of time, uh, I would think that the fate of the day trader would be similar to what it was in the 90s.
2: You know, that makes a lot of sense. The other question I wanted to ask you about online trading, I don't remember which CEO said this. It it could have been Tim Buckley at Vanguard. But one of the questions um, that have come up has been about cybersecurity. How much should this be keeping uh, the people running current trading shops up at night these days? How, How dangerous is the risk from hackers and others accessing accounts? And how much more work needs to be done to make sure that there's a increased level of cybersecurity for financial
1: firms? Whatever the most is a firm can do, <laughs> they probably have to increase that. Uh, so it's got to be the number one priority. I know when I was asked a lot of times, and using the term that, You just used, you know, what would really keep me up at night? I mean, I knew we were doing a really good job with, with executing our business plan, and I knew we were doing a great job with our numbers and with our people, et cetera, et cetera. But... At the end of the day uh, we're doing everything we can to make sure our technology is fail-proof but we know we know that uh, nothing's perfect and uh, what happens if we get blindsided what happens if we get a hacker now we we've got people that do nothing to try to hack into our system so we can prevent hackers from hacking into our system so this is not going away and and, and to me barry the single greatest risk in the world today is terrorism and terrorism can come at you a number of different ways not just by flying into a building but you know they can have a bio you can have a biological attack you can have a chemical attack. Uh, you can have, obviously, a nuclear attack. But you can also have a cyber attack. And the cyber attack is the one that probably scares me the most. Uh, so from the United States perspective, in terms of just national defense, we have to we have to make this a number one priority in every business uh, in our country and probably around the world that has a serious technology uh a part of what they do. And I I think that should probably be everybody. You've got to be able to protect that and do everything you can to stay ahead of the game. And if you don't do that, you're going to fall behind. You can't afford to fall behind.
0: You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers, They're small business masterminds.
2: Let's talk a little bit about your return to coaching. What made you decide to go back into football?
1: When I stepped down in 2008 as CEO, and that's when the firm asked me to be chairman, um, we had had a 500% return for our shareholders. And we outperformed every financial firm in the globe then. And in 2008, when the world was blowing up, and that includes the financial crisis, but when the world was blowing up, we got it right. We didn't do any of the things that everybody else did. And I said, part of that is, as I mentioned, I grew up in the fixed income world. And I pushed the envelope. I'm always pushing it. I'm very, very aggressive. But never to the point where you cross a line. And never to the point where you cross the lines too aggressively, i.e. with leverage, where you potentially put your institution at risk. So we got it right. Uh, So I stepped down in 2008, and I I had been working pretty – in my father's fruit store since I was 10 years old and I was ready ready to kind of take a break. And, um, but because we had done so well, um, frankly, I had never been in more demand in my career and there could have been some very, very significant opportunities, but I I didn't step down to take other opportunities. Um, and then I got a call from a group of alumni at Yale telling me that, uh, the football job may be opening and would I be interested? And I remember literally (laughs) <laughs> I was in a hotel in Vermont, and I remember looking at my telephone and putting it back to my ear. and said, guys, I said, you know, I have a coach for over 20 years. They said, we know that. But we spent a lot of time looking at the skill sets that required of a head coach. We think you not only have those skill sets, but you have better advantages other people don't have. And I said, there's only one problem. What's that? Well, in 135 years of college football, nothing like this has ever happened. And uh, somebody like you is not going to be hired unless they sign off from the president. And a typical president in academia may be very, very smart, but they're not risk-takers. They're not right. risk-reward people. But think about it. Think about it. And I really did. And I really did. And I spent the next six, seven months tr- truly, truly, you know, examining my conscience. Is this is something that I wanted to do, and uh, looking at the pros and the cons. And it hit me that, number one, at this point in my life, while there were a lot of other things I could do, would, would, I, I not get greater, would I not get greater satisfaction by going back to football and really having an impact on uh, helping a 18- uh, or 22-year-old boy really kind of growing up and becoming a man? And I didn't think I could do anything else that would give me greater satisfaction. Than that Number two, and I think this was subconscious. I, I didn't acknowledge it out loud, but I do think it was subconscious in hindsight that you know, I left football uh, to go to Wall Street when my career path was, uh, was on a great path. Uh, when my career was under, when it was a great path. And um, uh, and I, I think without question, had I gone to Miami, I think, had I not gone to Wall Street, I think I would have been a major college coach at, you know, the biggest schools in the country. And I think I would have been very successful doing that. And, 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 and maybe there was a piece of me that, you know, wanted to take a shot at that.
2: Huh. Really interesting. So before I asked you how being a football coach prepared you for a career in finance, let me flip that question. How did running a big technology and finance company prepare you for your reentry into coaching?
1: I think with regard to, I think, think in, in the business world, uh, were, we were always so aggressive. And we're trying to, This is true also of the divisions I was responsible for Merrill Lynch. So aggressive and, and try, trying to do as much as we can. To me, it wasn't so much the bottom line. It was maximizing your potential. So if you can earn a dollar, and, or the street expects you to earn a dollar, and you come in at ten. everybody's patting you on the back. But I would want my executive team to know, was the ten the most we could do, or should we have done the $1.20? Uh, and, and so maximize your potential, whether it's football or business, what was always a priority in mine. I certainly felt that strongly in the business world. The second piece of it, that, that in order to do that, in order to have you know, thousands of people and you know, multiple things going on, you had to absolutely make sure you had the right people around you, period. You had to make sure you had the right people around you that bought into what you believe in and people that you count on and trust. Uh, And you had to be willing to make tough decisions if that wasn't the case. I think you also then needed to be able to definitely, absolutely, delegate to those people. And again, I said before, you needed to have a sophisticated enough strategy to handle contingency down the road, but simplify it so you can execute. Every one of those things, Barry with things that help me become a better football coach. So my number one priority was hire the best possible people I can. they got to buy into my leadership philosophy. they got to buy into what I'm doing. If they don't, they're not going to be part of the program going forward. And I am a world-class delegator. And if you are running my offense or you're running a your defense or whatever your particular job may be, I'm expecting you to do that. And I'll do what I can to help you. And of course, during a game, certain decisions the head coach has got to make. But I am counting on you to be able to do that. Very, very similarly to what I did did when I was on Wall Street. So so you have, you can't micromanage, uh, and you've got to have the right people in the place right, that you delegate to. And then, then frankly, you monitor progress.
2: Huh. So here's a question that I guess is obvious, but I'm just thinking of it now. There's a 20-year gap between your two coaching stints. How has the game changed? How have the student athletes changed? How has the technology and the officiating changed? How different is college football today from back when you were a coach in the late 70s and 80s?
1: So, first of all, you know the, the simple thing—they they took the hash marks, they brought them to the middle a little bit, so you had. Affect a wider field. Number one, number two, the game has certainly sped up. You know, very few people even huddle up today. Now we did that too, but that was a, that was a two minute drill, and we needed to handle that both offensively and defensively. But the only time people really did that was when they were in a two minute drill. Now pretty much everybody does that. Um, I think that when you look at sets that existed then, by, by that I mean formations. Uh, you, the typical offense today is very much spread out across the field. That wasn't always the case back then, so the game's faster. There, there, there's more. Uh, there is more uh, a combination. I think of passing and running. Probably more passing um, and, and the speed of the game. Now, I think today there's also more of an emphasis placed on schemes. Whereas when I coached first time, he was probably more of an emphasis placed on fundamentals. So I think doing both today's scheme and fundamentals, is one of the things that I think would give us a competitive advantage. Now, let's look at the player. So you've got you know your 18 year old kid uh, who's uh, who's who's constantly connected because of technology so there's more information coming at him or her than has ever been the case in the past and I think because of that there, there tends to be a little bit more pressure perhaps to produce or uh, how you interact with your peers or whatever it might be. But so while the world has changed and everything is faster and everybody's connected and everybody's got you know uh, look playing look looking at their phones all the time the basic thing that makes up a human being, a young boy, a young girl, uh, as, you, as you go through the beginning of adulthood, that hasn't changed at all. It hasn't changed at all. So I think about what it was like when I was growing up. I think it was like when my children were growing up. I think what my players were like the first time and what players are like this time. And the concern about peer pressure the concern about, you know, the issues associated with drugs or or, or sex or, or alcohol, the, the, the pressure potentially that might come from a parent or with respect of coach or with respect to your teacher or with your girlfriend or boyfriend or whomever it might be, that hasn't changed. So I think, number one, you got to recognize that. And while the world's changed around it, the, the basic human being, what makes us tick, what makes us tick inside Mm -hmm. I think that was true 50 years ago. I think that's the way it is today. I think that's going to be true 50 years from now.
2: So there are two aspects to student athletics that I think have changed and I want to get your opinion on. The the first is the athleticism of the players. It certainly feels like players today are faster, bigger, stronger. Is that my imagination, or are student athletes really – in a level of competitive shape that's noticeably different than 25 years ago?
1: Uh, you're 100% right. You see that exactly right. And I think part of that is a tremendous emphasis, in, of course, in terms of strength training and, 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 and workouts and things like that that, frankly, take place over the span of the entire year. So if you look at football, but this is true in other sports, You know, our guys lift at least twice a week. And the off-season, that becomes three or four times a week, perhaps five times a week, depending on what we have going on. So, in effect, you're working out year-round. That's number one. And the number two piece is, you know, after 25 years, look at mortality rates. You know, 75 years ago, mortality rate may have been 50. Today is 85. So there's also also the element of evolution that has taken place. You know, the typical person, a little bit faster, a little bit stronger, a little bit larger, a little bit, maybe a little bit smarter. All of those things, I think, uh, have taken place over time.
2: And then the second issue that came up over the past couple of years is the concept of uh, the NCAA and student athletes demanding control over their image, control over um, how how licensing is done with their names. And even student athletes getting paid. What What are your thoughts on this area?
1: Well, uh, being a business guy, you know, Barry, I certainly I think you got to follow the money, and you got to pay close attention to that. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and so, I think if, if you really understand money flow and how it works, a lot of times it's not that you can not that you're a soothsayer or a fortune teller, but you kind of tell what's going to ultimately happen. And with regards to this, to, to preface it for a moment, I, you know, when I went to college, I was married, I had a daughter, I had to pay every dime of my education. And we have about 125 guys or so on the team. Well, only 85 of them have scholarships. That means we've got 40 guys on the team that, are, that do not get aid. And they treated exactly like the other guys, and they got to work just as hard as the other guys, and they're not getting money. So you would think then to be able to provide a student-athlete with uh, room, board, books, tuition you know is a pretty significant thing but the tv contracts are so significant are so significant today that the amount of money a power five school makes from their league from their conference just in football alone is astronomical uh, far greater than let's say what the entire athletic budget would be at coastal carolina so so with that amount of money, and look at coaches at the Power Five level getting paid four, five, six, seven, eight, nine million dollars, and schools being able to get rid of a coach and not have a problem with a ten million dollar payout, and then hire another guy for six, seven million dollars a year. There's a lot of money there, and I would suggest that a lot of that money is actually being wasted. So, for the soon after you raise the hand and say, "Hey, I'm entitled to some here," and I think the NCAA could have been could have taken a far greater leadership role in this, right. but they didn't, and. Um, uh, so, so, at, so at the end of the day, I think I think this is part of evolution, uh, that we're moving in this direction as student-athletes. Uh, now, I think the majority of the states, I think, have already voted that, uh, you know, student-athletes can get paid for the use of their image. Uh, and I don't necessarily disagree with any of that. So I think that's the way of the world. I think that's the way the dollars are going. Uh, there are enough dollars go around, so I can appreciate that happening. So if it's going to happen, take a leadership role in it. Uh, the issue, the concern that I have is that this becomes easier to cheat. So, if you go back in the 70s, the 60s, and the 70s, it wasn't uncommon to give a, give a player money. Uh, it wasn't uncommon, but you know, you're doing that in an effort to be able to recruit him. Uh, certainly, it happens in all sports, but probably especially basketball, where you really only need one guy to really make a difference in, in the ultimate team. So, but then, then you saw what happened to SMU. You saw what happened to a couple of other programs when, when, when they got the death penalty. So uh, the, 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 the NCAA and college football has really been very, very strict with that over time. Well, now if individual players can get paid on their own because they're using their image, or there's enough money to go around, and the student athlete is getting some of that, um, I worry about how that gets controlled. I worry about I worry about uh, whether or not teams and there's so much money involved, as I pointed out a minute ago so much money involved, there is even more of a propensity potentially to take advantage of that. And by that, I mean crossing the line and cheating. So I, I, see, I see an uptick in that, which is a negative. But moving this direction, I think, is the way of the world. And I'd rather do with it and have a control on it than, than you know, follow it along.
0: You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? at QuickBooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
2: Um, since we're talking about getting paid for um, playing, let's talk about getting paid for coaching. I, I read something fascinating in, in USA Today um, as part of the Coastal Carolina cutbacks you agreed to forego your salary and accept a dollar just as a formality making you arguably the best bargain in college athletics how do you respond to that
1: i think even with my salary i was a pretty good bargain for college athletics but i think (laughs) at a dollar at a dollar that's a deal uh, with with my with a dollar i think especially with my background and And uh, I take incredible, incredible pride in in being a football coach. I'm not just a football coach. And um, with the university that I'm associated with, you know, uh, whatever I can do to kind of participate in that or help, you know, I want to be able to do. So so we were in the middle of a global pandemic, of course, and a lot of people had to sacrifice. And, uh, you know, I thought it was only fair that I gave up my salary.
2: And that also, given your background in finance and management, It really raises the question, what do you do for the college over and above just, and I know it's a full-time job, but just being a coach, I kind of picture you as being able to pick up just about any sort of role and run, again, not to mix metaphors, but run with the ball on just about anything you could possibly do for the school.
1: Well, I think one of the things that you know I certainly had a had a close it was Dave Desenzo, our previous president who just stepped down recently um that you know he was the guy that frankly uh put his credibility on line by hiring me, so we always had a good relationship, and he and I would meet relatively frequently and talk about different things he had going on. I was always happy to give him my opinion um i was I was somewhat instrumental and in, and in, and uh the current president that we had that just officially began in january uh, uh, the, uh Michael Benson. And uh, the, the guy has an incredible academic resume, frankly, the, the best of anybody we have on campus. He's a true scholar. He speaks multiple languages. He plays multiple, multiple instruments, but he's also an athlete himself. His children are athletes, and he very much understands and believes and appreciates the significance that athletics can take uh, in, uh, in, in, uh, in a university life. So, my titles today stepped down in 2018. My titles today are, I am Executive Advisor to the President, mm-hmm. and he and I probably try to have dinner every couple of weeks and talk about what we've got going on. And again, he's new, so he's making a lot of changes. And we all his decisions, but we'll talk about a lot of that. And then, on the other side, I'm Chair of Athletics, but the only thing, only responsibility I have in athletics is football. So football does does report directly to me. And so they're, they're, my, they're my two roles. But I think... Uh, President Benson especially, would not hesitate to use me in different roles. For example, maybe visit the board, talk about different things, et cetera. Uh, so I, I'm happy for them to, to, to leverage whatever my experiences may be.
2: Before we get to our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests, I, I have a curveball I want to throw at you, and it's this quote from Roger Staubach, which is, it's unlikely that any other candidate has ever been as remarkably successful in two unrelated fields of endeavor, football and finance, as Joe has been. So so tell us about your relationship with Roger Storback, who, by the way, for listeners who may not be familiar with uh, his history, not only was he a spectacular football player, but he also built an amazing commercial real estate business that was sold for I think half a billion dollars like a giant winning transaction tell us a little bit about your relationship with Roger Staubach
1: you know to add one point there that I think is worth adding as well Barry that you know he also played at the Naval Academy where he was the highest trophy winner. then he went on to serve our country as he graduated the Naval Academy so he missed about four seasons or so as a a pro football player still had and still had the career he had So when I decided that I want to go back to football, I recognized that I wanted to be able to reach out to as many people as were practical that I thought maybe could give me some insight. And one of those people was Roger. Now, one of my friends from Omaha, uh, former Admiral uh, Bob Bell, uh, he went to the Naval Academy around, around the same time that Roger did. And, you know, they were friends. So he made that introduction. And I went down to Dallas to meet with him, and we became friends. It wasn't uncommon for us to have dinner or breakfast if I were in town, and I, he never hesitated, you know, to to, to talk to me if, if I reached out for something. So 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 that so that ability for me to just have access to him by itself was, I think, really really terrific. And as you pointed out, he's the one guy too that had, but not as a coach. He was a player. That there's a difference there. But certainly understands the world of football, whether it's collegiate or, or pro, and then certainly understands the world of business because he was incredibly successful there as well. So he was a, a, a very very bright guy, as you would expect. So he was a wonderful resource for me to, to me, for me to be able to reach out to. Huh,
2: really, really quite interesting. All right, so let's jump to our favorite questions that we ask all our guests, starting with. Um, given the fact that you're no longer coaching and have a little more free time these days, tell us what you're streaming. What, you, what were you watching to keep yourself busy uh, during the pandemic and, and the work from home year?
1: you know, I think you know, a lot of people think just because I'm a football coach, I'm, I'm a crazy football fan, but I'm not. And uh, I look, you know, I used to look at 35 hours of tape when I go home. I don't want to watch football. <laughs> so I would enjoy I would enjoy a movie. I would enjoy some of the episodes that they had on Netflix. I mean, uh, whether it's uh, uh, Billions, uh, Ray Donovan, uh, House of Cards, uh, the uh, the, uh, uh, uh There are a handful of those that I think they're really, really, really well done that I enjoy. And because they're episodes... You know, I, I'm not stuck to two and a half hours having to watch. That's number one. The other thing, though, in terms of podcast, the one that actually I do really enjoy is Compound, and that's the one you know with the the, the Josh Brown runs. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I follow that. I think they've done a good job. And and I, I think if I'm not if I'm not mistaken, they're going to add like Compound and Friends thing, which I don't think has started yet. But I've gotten a lot of value out of out of out, an enjoyment out of all those.
2: So by the time this broadcasts, that will have started. And uh, if you'd like to be a guest on Compound and Friends, I would be happy to twist Josh's arm and have you show up on, uh, on that
1: podcast. <laughs> I would enjoy that, Barry. I would enjoy that. Uh, I, I have a lot of respect for him as well.
2: So now let's talk a little bit about some mentors. Who were the people who helped shape your career?
1: You know, I think you could talk about, you know, there are – uh, as a coach, for example, I, I read everything there was to read about Vince Lombardi and John Wooden. So they were both very successful, but both were very, very opposite. In the business world, you got Warren Buffett, you got Lee Coco, You got, you know, there were so many people there. But the people that really changed, uh, shaped my career, uh, especially as a leader and as a, as a person, but in the in, the, in, in football and and uh, business, were my parents. And my dad was an Italian immigrant. He came here when he was 11, never finished eighth grade, uh, sold bananas and apples in the Bronx his entire life. But dad, my mom, he met my mom after World War II. She came in Ireland. Uh, she came over here to marry him. Uh, she never finished 10th grade. I was the oldest of five. The seven of us grew up in at the time. At Dighton Street section in New York City was very much a gang area. I was part of that, and we lived, seven of us lived in a two-bedroom, one bathroom apartment. And um, from my mom, she, was, she had such an incredible attitude, always with a smile on her face, unconditionally loved us, you know, always had a, uh, the, the glass was always half full, you know, enjoyed laughing, but truly, truly loved us. And I think very much, I, I get my sense of humor and a lot of my personality, I think, from my mom. On my dad's side... Dad was committed to make sure he took care of his family. He worked very hard in that food store 14 hours a day, six days a week. And I, I learned I learned the uh, how how important a real work ethic was, and again, make sure you take care of your family. The difference with regard to my dad, yeah, maybe three people working for him. His dad never had a hobby, and most times he burnt out. And later on in life, he wanted to become an alcoholic. And uh, but I, I could tell uh, just the way he treated his guys and uh, treated me. There was always. I felt kind of a better way to do something. Like, he was always in a bad mood. It was never his fault. The glass was always half empty. And um, and I think he could have been, done a better job like delegating and have the other guys do work. And in terms of being a leader, and I mentioned before, my ability to delegate and how I run things and how I lead, a lot of that that I learned was from my father in terms of what not to do. So I think the two greatest influencers on my life were literally my mom, my mom and my dad.
2: Really, really quite interesting. Let, let's talk a little bit about books. What are some of your favorites, and what are you reading currently?
1: The um, the uh, probably my best, most favorite book is the Gold Coast. Uh, probably written about thirty years ago by Nelson DeMille. Yep, uh, about. And it's the Gold Coast, meaning Long Island. And it's about this guy, I think he was Stevie Bellarosa, who was a, a mafia guy that I think came in to buy one of these estates on Long Island for, I'm making up the numbers enough, like $16 million. And he brings a bag of cash to that. And I thought it was a fun book. It was actually, and I actually read it twice because I enjoyed it that much. Then the other, the, the book, book that I just finished, I just thought another one, it was Walking with Ghosts by uh, Gabriel Byrne. And um, I, it, it, it's his memoirs. And He's really a very, 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 I've always respected him as an actor, but he's really a very, very clever writer. And I've gotten a lot of joy out of that. And then what I'm reading right now is Barack, you know, the one by Obama. Sure. And this is a long one. And I'm only about 130 pages into it. But some of it is really enjoyable. Some of it gets a little bit too much detail. I skip over a little bit. But that's what I'm reading now. That's what I just finished. And the other one was my favorite book.
2: So, well, there are a variety of different Barack Obama books. This, is, I'm assuming, is whatever the
1: most re- recent one is. You know, it's either Barack or it's Obama. It's just one word title, and it's his name.
0: You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
2: So our final two questions. What sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad who is interested in a career in either college athletics or finance?
1: No, I think one of my principles of leadership is, uh, I call it spiritual soundness. It doesn't have to be religious, but it can be. But it's I think most people don't really know who they are. And um, I think you, know, you become a composite of, like who I am relative to my mother, my father, my girlfriend, my wife, my, my job, what kind of executive am I, what kind of coach am I, what kind of friend am I, et cetera, et cetera. And if you sit down and you write that down, and like just keep writing and writing and writing about yourself, and you step away from it, come back to it later, you're probably going to change 25% of things. things you wrote down. But with one guidelines, you can never show it to anybody. Because the second you show it to somebody, you're subconsciously actually looking for their approval. So uh, in order to be happy, I think you need to know who you are because you're going to have to make decisions under stress. And the better you know who you are, the greater the probability you'll make the right decisions. Now, one of those, and the most, one of the most important by far, is your career path. So if you know who you are, what kind of skill sets do you really have? What are the skill sets required? whether it's coaching or athletics or business or whatever the field might be, what is skill sets required for success in that field? Do you have those skill sets? If you don't, do not go down that path. If you do, you still have to ask yourself one other thing and that is, well, is this something you'd really love? The answer is, there is yes. And chances are, you've done a good job of picking the right career path. So it's kind of irrelevant whether or not it's finance or trading or investing or football. It's kind of like what works for you? Not because This is something you thought about, not because this is what your dad did or somebody you admire does. Uh, It's kind of what really works for you. And I think we would have a happier society if more people spent more time thinking that through. To,
2: To say the very least. And our final question, what do you know about the world of investing and trading and football today that you wish you knew 20, 25, 30 years ago?
1: i think I think thirty years ago, from a football perspective, I think it would have been great to have the scheme knowledge that exists today, the ability to really kind of go out spread out the field, uh, take advantage of not just the triple option that Oklahoma and Nebraska used to run, but true option attack run pass, and, and and do do different things in effect from an offensive perspective. I think that would have been great, I think for me to have back then and from, from with regard with regard to the business world i think I think really. Uh, the principles that I build on today, what are your core competencies? You gotta make sure you're taking care of your people. Uh, what really matters are your clients, your shareholders and your associates, because it's your employees that give value to each of those constituents. You know, the for me, while the world's changed, I just grown with the world. I've just adapting and I do a good job of adapting adjusting and I've adapted adjusted with the world. But the principles I believe in so much today that I'm really good at because of the experience that I've been able to relate. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how I started out. And they were the same principles I believed in, you know, 30 years ago. Uh, I wish I were more experienced, because with that experience comes knowledge, and with that knowledge comes wisdom, so you can make better decisions for yourself and for your people, for your family. So uh, it'd be the same. So th- th- that would be what I-, I wish I had 30 years ago. Huh.
2: Really quite quite fascinating. Joe, thank you for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Joe Moglia, who is not only formerly a head coach at several esteemed college football teams, but is also the former chairman and CEO at trading giant TD Ameritrade. If you enjoy this conversation, well, check out any of the other nearly 400 such interviews we've had on Masters in Business. You can find that at all the usual places iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your uh, podcasts. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at MIB at Bloomberg.net. Sign up for my daily reads at Rithultz.com. Check out my weekly column on Bloomberg at Bloomberg.com slash Opinion. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put these conversations together each week. Tim Harrow is my audio engineer. Michael Batnick is my head of research. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. And my producers are Michael Boyle and Paris Wald. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the
1: Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar, and
2: premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at Qatar Economic forum.com.